If you have a Bible, let's open up to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Last week we began a new sermon series that we're going to kind of carry on into Advent. We're going to carry on uh, looking verse by verse at 1 and 2 Thessalonians. And so this morning we're going to be in chapter 2. And if you have no idea where Thessalonians is, that's okay. Feel free to use the table of contents. If it was a sin to use it, they wouldn't put it in there. We're in the New Testament. Remember, we've said this is how the Bible works. So the Old Testament says somebody's coming. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the gospel accounts say someone's here right now. And the whole rest of the New Testament says someone's coming again. So who is that someone? The promised Savior, Jesus Christ himself. And so we are in the New Testament book, or New Testament letter that Paul wrote to this church in Thessalonians. And as you're opening up there, and if you missed last week, I'll catch you up with a little bit of context before we read. Paul had founded this church in Thessalonica, but was facing skepticism in the city. And Acts 17 mentions that Paul, Timothy, and Silas had spent at least three weeks ministering to the church there on a return trip to the city. We talked about last week how Thessalonica was this big, diverse port city. Some commentators called it the New York City of Macedonia. It was this big, wealthy city with a lot going on. It was on a port, so a lot of people coming in and out. And you remember as the crow flies, it was about 50 miles from Mount Olympus, which if you're familiar with your kind of Greek and Roman mythology, Mount Olympus is where the gods sat enthroned. And so people would come on a pilgrimage to go to Mount Olympus, and really the first place they stopped was Thessalonica. And so you had this big, busy city. And so they'd also had a large population of Jews who took exception to Paul's bold preaching. As you know, he would go into the synagogue and just begin declaring the gospel. And so in Thessalonica, they had actually formed a mob and dragged Paul and Jason, his host, in front of the authorities and charged them with treason against Caesar. Remember, Thessalonica was a free Roman city. They enjoyed great privileges, and because of that, they would protect that Roman privilege at all costs. And so here is this upstart uh, upstart Paul. They drag him before it, and he has to be smuggled out in the middle of the night. And Paul later wrote this letter from Corinth to the church in Thessalonica because he was worried about this group of young Christians in this young church, and they were facing hardship. But he was encouraged by the strength of their faith and witness. We looked at that last week. They had received the gospel in faith. They had turned from idol worship. They had obeyed the authority of the Scripture. And because of that, they had actually become ambassadors of Christ to the larger Macedonian world. But Paul had heard that some people had begun spreading lies about his motives and the nature of his ministry, and they were arguing that he was only doing it for personal gain. Some ways he was, they were saying, Paul, people were saying that this guy Paul is coming in, and he's only just using you to line his own pockets. And so what Paul does is he writes a defense of his ministry. And because of that, in many ways, I'm thankful for Paul's detractors because it prompted him to write this very passage that we're going to read this morning. And what we see in this passage is Paul giving us a glimpse into his pastoral heart, giving us a glimpse into his ministry among the Thessalonians. So I want you to see if you can spot these things that Paul is talking about and how he ministered to the church in Thessalonica. Okay, so see if you can spot that stuff. So with that in our mind, let's go and let's read 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. Let's give attention to the reading of God's Word. It comes with full authority from the Lord Himself. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you is not in vain, 
But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with you, never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves, because you had become very dear. To us, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. I'm grateful for that, and I hope you are. Let's pray and ask the Lord's help as we look to His word. Please pray with me. Father, we are grateful for passages like this that remind us of how you are at work in the hearts and minds of people. And Lord, we pray that you would be at work in our own hearts and minds this morning. May we be transformed and renewed by your Spirit. Lord, help us to see. Uh, more of you. Help us to see much less of ourselves, O oh Lord. Help us to make much of Christ. And Lord, we are grateful for your word and the truth of it. And may we sit under it and receive it with authority. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Or you may have heard the phrase before, if it seems too good, it probably is. You heard about that? You ever heard that phrase? And we think about this, and we've all been faced with moments like this. You ever seen like a coupon or you get an email that comes in, and you read the promises that it is making, and you go, where's the catch? It's, it can't be that good. It can't be that good. What do you mean, buy one, get three free pork shoulders that I can turn into delicious barbecue? Where's the catch? There has to be something. We used to have... A, uh, we used to have a, a thing in Virginia when we lived there, or we lived in Charlotte, and they would, they would put this particular brand of ice cream on that it was like, buy two, get three free. We're like, this is amazing. This is the best day ever, and we all look forward to that. But you may have all been faced with moments like this, uh, you know, a Groupon deal. You ever gotten one of the mailers that comes with the fake key taped to it, and you're like, all you got to do is just show up. And maybe this key is going to start that free car that's out there. Okay, now we all in our mind go, there is no way that car dealership is giving away a free car. But in the back of our minds we go, but maybe they are. And maybe this might be the magic key. You may have seen a travel discount, Sunday coupon, whatever it is. We're always looking and going, what's the catch? Where's the fine print? And the reason why we're asking those questions, what's the catch? Where's the fine print? Is that we've all been disappointed by fine print moments, have we not? We have all had those moments in our lives, and we've, we've had those moments where we realize that we didn't read the fine print. And what happens is it leads us to be cynical and skeptical. And many of you have, have left maybe feeling used and vowed to never trust again. We've had moments like this that hurt because we're exposed to the brokenness in our world, and we cope with that disappointment oftentimes by covering our hearts with cynicism and skepticism. And what we end up doing is we shut others out to protect ourselves. Anybody else done that? I have. Where, you know, you stick your hand out or you stick your neck out and it gets cut, and you go, I'll never do that again. And so what you do is you end up being very cynical and skeptical to everything and everyone around you, and what ends up happening is that dries like concrete over your heart. I may have used this illustration before, but that's okay, because you've probably forgotten it. <laughs> I used to work at Camp Greystone, okay? 
and I used to be on the maintenance staff. And one of the things that we did in the off-season is I was on the maintenance staff. I was a carpenter, plumber, electrician, tractor driver. I was the youngest guy on the totem pole. So guess who got to go into creepy crawl space first? Me. That was me, right? So I did that. And one of the things that we did was we did a dining hall renovation where we actually tore the front part off of the old dining hall and actually expanded it out. And one of the things that we had to do to make room for the new footer that was going to get poured is we actually had to bust up a 40-year-old reinforced concrete footer. Now, I don't know if you have ever worked with fully hardened and cured concrete before. Let me tell you, it's not fun. And one of the things that concrete does is good concrete actually continues to harden and cure over a long period of time. So it just gets harder and harder and harder. At some point, it reaches a point where it goes the other way, but it takes a long while of time to get there. And so what we did was we had to bust this footer up, and we tried everything, sledgehammers, jackhammers, backhoes. I remember we rented a little jackhammer, and we had to hold it like if you ever work one of those, they're really heavy. So we even like rigged up a rope where it would hold it and we could move it up and down. Man, that thing didn't even make a dent. It just, it didn't even give that footer a headache. And so we're out there just busting away on that thing. We finally got it out, but it took several days of hard work and hammering. And when you think about that concrete and you think about weak little me standing in front of that concrete, I bet your life looks like me sometimes. Because ministry, family life, parenting, jobs, it all feels like that, right? That you're picking the sledgehammer up and you're just constantly taking a swing, trying to chip away at it. It feels like that. It seems like the harder you work, the more skepticism and pushback you're getting met with. This might be your life right now. You might be so full of cynicism and skepticism uh, towards the church because of past hurts. Or you may have taken so many relational body shots that you're just tired and worn out. Trust me, I completely understand, okay? Here's a vision for the church. A safe place for skeptics and a rest stop for tired Christians to process the gospel of Jesus Christ within a community of grace and friendship. It's also a vision for individual Christians as they engage with the world around them. If you are not a Christian this morning, hey, we're so glad that you're here. I hope that this morning will give you a, even a better understanding of Christians and the church at large if you're kind of figuring out what this whole church thing is about. And the big question that I want us to ask this morning is, what vision does Paul give us for ministry to a skeptical and broken community in the world? What vision does Paul give us as we seek to reach out and minister to a culture that is skeptical and broken? We're going to see two points, two big ways. We're going to see that it is a ministry marked by the gospel. And number two, it's a ministry marked by relationships. So a ministry marked by the gospel, a ministry marked by relationships. Those are the two big things we're going to look at. Let's look at that first one. A ministry marked by the gospel. This is roughly verses 1 through 6. Notice what Paul says in verse 1. The context suggests that some had accused Paul of being a fraud or a charlatan, and he's writing to fellow Christians. You know, he noticed that he calls them brothers to reassure them of his integrity. And he says, Our coming to you was not in vain. We talked a little bit about this last week, but the Greek word here, kinos, it's translated vain, actually means empty handed. It's the image of being an empty suit, someone with no substance. He said, we didn't come to you like that. And Paul, notice that Paul doesn't just say, I'm not a fake, trust me. He backs his claim up with something the Thessalonians would have known about. Look at verse 2. He said, we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know. 
If you go back into Acts chapter 16, verses 19 to 24, you have this uh, story of Paul and Silas in Philippi being beaten with rods and stripped naked, jailed, put in the stocks, run out of town. Why? All for preaching the gospel. But they had been shamefully treated at Philippi. Paul went and boldly proclaimed the gospel under the real threat of persecution and a possible repeat of what had happened in Thessalonica. But his boldness was in God, not his own efforts. And we usually think of Paul as this brashly confident guy, which I'm, I'm sure he certainly was at some point. I mean, could you imagine going into these big major synagogues surrounded by people that you used to be among them as a Pharisee and then basically looking them in the eye and telling them that they got it all wrong? Could you imagine? So we think about Paul doing those kind of things, and I'm sure he did a lot of those. Um, but bare confidence crumbles quickly under the weight of physical suffering and public humiliation. I mean, think about Paul and what he said had happened to him because of preaching the gospel. Shipwrecked, beaten within an inch of his life, stoned, run out of town. At some point, your own like personal bravado starts to crumble under the weight of that suffering. And so something else had to be motivating him to preach so boldly in the midst of, of hostility. And so what gave Paul that kind of confidence? Isn't that a question that we all ask? It was the content of the message. It was the gospel. Romans 1.16, Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. Now you think, how in the world... Did Paul know this? He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God. How in the world did he know that? His own life, right? His own conversion. He knew firsthand that God could change a hard heart, even a very religious-looking hard heart. He knew that God could do it. Paul had confidence, but not in himself. He had confidence in the power of God to rescue broken sinners by the proclamation of the best news humanity could hear, which is the free offer of grace to broken, sinful, rebellious people who place their faith in Christ. And that is the message we proclaim this morning. The best news humanity could hear. Come ye sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, joined with power. It's the message that we proclaim, the gospel message of grace. And so you think, how in the world do we work in an environment that is so hostile towards the Christian faith? Have you noticed that the culture at large is not big fans of Christianity in the church? Have you picked up on that? If you haven't, you soon will. One of the things that I was reminded of, especially when I traveled around in my previous job for RTS Charlotte, you, know, you sit down in an airplane and you do the small talk, right? And inevitably what comes up? Hey, what do you do for a living? Let me tell you the fastest way to shut a conversation down in an airplane. Hey, what do you do for a living? I'm a pastor. That's it. Full stop. And so you think, how in the world do we work in an environment that's so hostile to the Christian faith? The answer is really simple, okay? It sounds simple, but it's not. We have to trust that God's at work and that the gospel is powerful enough to break a heart of stone, even a self-righteous religious one. We have to trust that God is at work because if it's all up to you and me to keep swinging the hammer, we're going to fail, if it's up to us to live a perfect moral life, we are already in deep trouble. So if it's not up to us to keep swinging the hammer, 
If it's not up to us to live a perfect life, where, what in the world, how does this work? You ever made fresh yeast bread or been around it? You ever been, you know, like fresh bread out of the oven? You know what I'm talking about. You ever walk past a bakery and it might be two blocks away, but you smell it. What do you do? Where's that bread? Who's making bread? Nothing beats hot, fresh bread out of the oven. But if you're familiar with the bread-making process, especially the yeast kind, okay? Now, I know I'm going to get myself in trouble. I'm not a baker. Here I claim my ignorance, all right? I don't know much. Here I stand, okay? But when you're making yeast bread, what is one of the most important steps in making the bread? Leaving it alone to let it rise, right? You just got to leave it there and walk away. That's probably the most important step, letting it rise. And here's the thing. Too often, we make the gospel so complicated, and we end up overworking the dough when the core message is remarkably simple. You ever thought about how brutally simple the gospel message is? It is, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's it. It's that simple. But yet, we feel like we got to go add a bunch of stuff to it. That can't be good enough, and we end up overworking the dough. And what we need to do is we just lay the gospel in front of people and trust the Holy Spirit. It's so hard to do. Trust me, I know. Don't overwork the dough. Stop swinging the sledgehammer. How do we minister to a skeptical world? We, do, we just keep faithfully and lovingly putting the bread of life in front of others and praying for God to work. And here's the thing. You have to remember, you are not coming in vain. Remember what Paul said? We didn't come to you in vain. We're not empty suits. You have to remember, you are not coming in vain. You are bringing the gospel. You're bringing the good news. You are bringing Jesus. And we are trusting that the Holy Spirit is always at work. You're not coming empty-handed when you go and share the gospel with others. You are bringing the best news humanity could ever hear. And we're asking and praying that the Holy Spirit would change that person's heart. You're not coming as a charlatan. You're not coming as a used car salesman. You're coming as a sinner who has been rescued and redeemed by grace. And you are saying, as D.T. Niles said, Christianity is just one beggar telling the other beggars where he found the bread. That's it. That's all we're doing. Be bold in your message, but back it up with a life of humility and integrity. Look at what Paul says in verses 5 and 6. He says, we never came to you with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. What he's saying is we could have come into town and we could have played the apostle card and said, you need to listen to us or else. But he said, we didn't do that. We came to you with humility. A ministry marked by the gospel is a ministry marked by humility and weakness. The gospel gives us freedom to admit that we're wrong and to stop trying to prove ourselves all the time. Remember, we said, what is the very first membership question when you want to come and join Grace Presbyterian Church? What do you have to admit about yourself? That you're a sinner in desperate need of God's grace. You have to admit you're bad to get into this church. That's question one. I'm bad. But Jesus is good. And you think about what is going on here. The gospel gives us the freedom to admit when we're wrong. When's the last time you've admitted that you're wrong? For real. Not just because somebody caught you in it, but because you've been convicted at the heart level that you were dead wrong. When's the last time? How's the gospel freeing you to admit that you're wrong? Or that you're not right all the time? How is the gospel freeing you to admit that you're not as self-righteous as you think you are? That you're not as perfect as you think you are. That you are a wretch. 
that you're a sinner in desperate need of God's grace? How's the gospel freeing you to admit that you are not perfect and that you don't have it all together? If you are admitting that about yourself, that you're perfect and have it all together, I got some bad news for you. You are wrong. That's why you need Jesus. That's why I say, I don't stand up here and go, look, come and ascend the high moral mountain that I have gained before you. Follow me. I'm so perfect. I'm like, y'all, I need Jesus too, and so do you. Where do we find him? Here. That's what we do every week. It's a ministry marked by the gospel, lived and backed up with a life of humility and weakness. The goal of the church is not to create a holy huddle. This is not a self-righteous country club. This is not that. The goal is to gather the lost and the hurting so that they can see the beauty of Jesus proclaimed in the gospel of grace. This is a hospital for messed up people. That's what the church is. Here's what Steve Brown said in his book, Three Free Sins. Kind of a long story, but hang, okay? He said, I did what every bald guy tries to do at the beginning, which is hide the baldness. I moved the hair around to the places where growth was sparse, but trying to hide baldness is sort of like self-righteousness. One doesn't even know it or admit it or think that anybody else notices it until a good wind destroys the ruse and everybody sees the truth. It starts with a lowering of the part of one's hair, and eventually it comes to growing the hair long where it will grow and brushing it to cover the places where it won't. He says, and he even says this, I love Steve Brown for his honesty. Okay? He says, there were times when I refused to take speaking engagements. He says, I can't believe I'm telling you this because I wouldn't have time to fix my hair and cover the baldness. <laughs> if you've ever heard Steve Brown or interacted with his stuff, you know that's just kind of how he is. He goes on and says, he says, it was my atheist friend who messed up the gig. Can I ask you a question? He said, of course. You're a preacher, aren't you? Steve said, you know that I am, in his deep voice. His friend said, how can you be a preacher who is into honesty and stuff like that and be so dishonest with your hair? He said, frankly, it's not only dishonest, it looks silly. Don't you know that everybody knows it and they laugh behind your back? Woo! Here's the thing. You're like, what in the world does that have to do with anything? Okay, here's the point. How do you think your ministry to others would change if you stopped trying to cover up your spiritual blind spots and bald spots and started being honest with your life under the banner of the gospel? How do you think your life would change if you spent less time trying to fix your hair in front of other people spiritually speaking and you were able just to go, here I am, by grace alone, warts and all? It's scary, isn't it? Oh, yeah. But it's absolutely essential because it takes the focus off of your righteousness and puts it onto Jesus and his righteousness. People can smell self-righteousness from a mile away, and they are not interested in you in hearing you call them up the hill to the high moral ground that you've claimed by that you have claimed to attain on your own merit and performance because they know you're lying. They're much more interested in hearing how Jesus has been precious to you in the midst of your own guilt and shame and struggles and the worries of everyday life and hearing about the hope that you have in Christ when life punches you in the gut. That's what they want to hear about. They won't hear about how perfect you are. They won't hear about the best news they could hear. Here's how Jesus has been precious to me when life came up and socked me right in the gut. I grew up hearing that I needed to get my life together and not mess up. That's my story. It's probably yours too. Bees on the report card in my house were not an option, and I still cringe when I hear the word unacceptable. That's what I heard all the time. Bees are unacceptable. I became a Christian in high school through young life, but I still thought it was all about me keeping the rules and flying right, and that dominated my life and behavior for years. 
And Jesus became precious to me in college when the Holy Spirit finally drilled a little hole in my performance-driven, self-righteous, hardened heart and helped me see that my spiritual report card was actually covered in Fs, even though I grew up in the church and that I still needed a Savior. The gospel didn't make sense to me until I realized that I was a straight F student. Up until that point, I'm like, look at me! Look at how great I am! Look, I'm living right! I'm a good boy! And the Spirit said, no, you're not. Here's what's really going on under the crust. I'm so thankful for someone that had the boldness to tell me what I really needed to hear, that I was a sinner instead of what I wanted to hear, that I could do it on my own. It was really good news, but it came coupled with a loving and patient relationship, which is our second point, which is shorter, which is a gospel, which is a ministry marked by relationships. So a ministry marked by the gospel, a ministry marked by relationships. This one's shorter. We need to see how Paul delivered his message to the Thessalonians. Did you pick up on that? Look at verses 7 and 8. Look at, what, look at what Paul said. He said, But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves, because you'd become dear to us. What a picture of this tender heart that Paul had towards these people. It's amazing when you think about it. And this is a direct response to the charges that were listed in verses 5 and 6. Flattery, greed, seeking fame, throwing his apostolic position around. But he said, we were gentle among you. And look at that picture that he gives of a, of a mother nursing her own children. This is a, a picture of a deep, intimate relationship with these people. And what motivated this kind of relationship? Verse 8, he said, being affectionately desirous of, desirous of you because you had become very dear to us because we love you. And what did he give them? He says, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, not only the content, first point, but also our very selves. The Greek word selves there is actually the word for the soul and the guts and the, the core of who we are. We were ready to share that with you. So how does this look in our day-to-day -day ministry as we love and care for others? Here's, what, here's, here's the deal, okay? This is why I'm not going to sell a ton of books on this subject. Because the answer is shockingly normal. What's it look like? Meals in homes, fixing flat tires, playing games, crying with others, laughing with them, grieving with others, really listening. You know what I mean. That you're not waiting for your turn to talk. That you just sit and listen. That kind. Shockingly normal stuff. We let others into our own messiness. It's hard work. It's often inconvenient. It's sometimes scary, but it is an essential part of ministry. Brene Brown said, two of the most powerful words in the midst of a struggle are me too. I know what that's like. I get it. I understand. Personal ministry is not abstract. It's not complicated, but it's deeply relational. It's often messy, and it's inconvenient basically all of the time. But that is what we are called to do. Here's what C.S. Lewis said. He said, to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your own selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable, to love is to be vulnerable. 
Now, why should we love others like this? What's the payoff? So what, Dave? Who cares? Why should we love other people like this? Because Jesus left the very throne room of heaven to rescue us when we were at our worst because of the great love with which he loved us. And you know what he didn't ask you to do before he would save you? And that is go clean yourself up and take a spiritual shower and make yourself perfect. And only after that will I love you and accept you in your family. That is not how the gospel works. And that's why good news. You and me were the dirty little sea urchin, like street urchin orphans out in the streets, stinking and smelling. And the Lord sought us out by grace and called us to, his, to himself. It's amazing. So why should we love other people like that? Because Jesus loved us like that first. Relational ministry might sound scary because of those fine print moments where you stuck your neck out and, and, and in love and, and you got burned. Trust me, I understand. I get it. Sticking your neck out and you just get burned over and over again. I get it. Me too. I understand. But Jesus frees us to stick our neck out to love others because he stuck his neck out first to love us. How are you inviting people into your messiness? Or are only people only welcome into your life after you vacuumed up your life and heart a little bit? How are you letting people into your messiness? Or are you trying to put a personal front out in front of other people that I'm perfect and I got it all together? The Holy Spirit will take that and snap it over his knee. Let people into your life, please. The vision for gospel-centered ministry is patient, honest, gospel-driven relationships. You think about the story of Rosaria Butterfield, who was just an atheist, God-hating lesbian who hated Christianity, hated the church. And she got a letter from a guy named Ken Smith who was a pastor and just started asking questions. Just developed a relationship with her. And over time, by God's grace, God took that woman's heart and completely changed it. Completely changed it. It's amazing when you think about it, how God uses weak people to break through hard hearts of stone. Okay, so what's this look like? Closing story, here we go. You remember that big old footer I had to pound on at camp? Me, little piddly me, whacking on it with a sledgehammer and barely even like making it even wiggle? Took forever. Fast forward seven years, and I may have even used this illustration before, but you probably forgot it. Fast forward a couple of years, and I found out about this product called EcoBust. You ever heard of this stuff? It's amazing. Instead of pounding away with a sledgehammer, all you have to do is you go and you drill a few holes, you mix this stuff, you mix this stuff up, you pour it in the holes, and you go to bed. And guess what it does while you're asleep? It expands and breaks that big old concrete footer up. You show up the next morning, and you're like, that was amazing. The power of modern chemistry. EcoBust. That is the vision for gospel-driven ministry to a skeptical world and our own backyard. We don't just get out the sledgehammer and start whacking away at outward behavior. That is moralism. People get a steady diet of it in this area, and they're tired of swinging the hammer. We want Jesus to change the hearts of people and for the Holy Spirit to renovate them from the inside out. That's what we want in our lives too. Lord, please renovate me. Please change me and make me more like your son. Jesus calls the weary and the heavy laden to rest in him. And he's calling you to do that as well. He's calling you to put down the hammer and to rest in Christ. Put it down. Get off the treadmill. Stop. You're killing yourself. 
We build relationship with others and we pray that the Holy Spirit would drill a small hole in their concrete heart, covered heart, so that the eco-bust of the gospel can get in there and do its work and bust that heart of stone up. That it would break through the skepticism and help them and us to see Jesus and the richness of the grace of the gospel. And the good news of the gospel is that if you consider yourself a Christian this morning, this is exactly, exactly what God did in your life. When he busted up that hard heart of stone and he gave you a heart of flesh and eyes to see and ears to hear. And if you are here and you do not know Christ this morning, here is my simple call as a minister of the gospel. Thankfully, I'm not sitting next to you on a plane. Okay? Here's the call. Okay? Get off the treadmill of your own self-salvation project. You cannot do it on your own. If you are here and you, and you have just been going through the religious motions thinking that you can do it, get off the treadmill and trust in Christ. If you're here and you don't know Christ, you've got a big sin problem and God the Father is going to deal with it. His holiness demands it. But there's hope in Christ. There's hope in Christ. Put down the hammer and flee to Jesus. That's it. That's the fastball down the middle every week. Look to Jesus, look to Christ, rest in Christ, trust in Christ. How do we reach out to a skeptical world? We bring the message of the gospel paired with loving, patient relationships, and then we trust the Holy Spirit to do His work over the long haul. It is that beautifully simple. Stop overworking the dough. Rest in Christ. Let people into your mess and trust Him. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank You for Your Word. Thank you that you can use me in spite of my long-windedness and my ranting and raving. Lord, we pray that you would take these words, seal them deeply into our hearts, remind us of your grace, remind us of your mercy, remind us of the great love that which you loved us, that while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, you made us alive together with Christ, and it's by grace we've been saved. And we have no grounds for boasting except boasting in Christ. And so may that be... Our boast this morning, boasting in Christ and all that he has done on our behalf. Lord, please give us the confidence. Please help us to trust the gospel enough, Lord, to let other people into our messiness, that we wouldn't have to feel like we need to go pretty ourselves up beforehand, that we can just be real and honest with other people. And help us to realize that as we build these relationships, we're not coming in vain. We're not coming empty-handed. We're bringing the best news that humanity could hear, which is a free offer of the gospel of grace. Good news for wretched, broken sinners just like us. Lord, help us to just be reminded. We're so quick to forget. Help us to be reminded of your grace and your mercy. Help us to trust you all the more. And Lord, thank you that every bit of your word is true. And help us to trust you and be faithful. And we pray these things humbly in Christ's name. Amen.